going to be in Genesis 6, 1 through 8 this morning, and I entitled this sermon, Enough, and I was thinking just the power of one word, that one word can have like that. When somebody says that, especially with the exclamation point at the end, there's a lot being communicated in that, right? Uh, many of us in the room have probably said that. I said that even this week. I don't need to get the context of it, but I felt convicted. I already knew this was going to be my sermon title, and I still heard it come out of my mouth. This, enough! Like, what are you doing? Like, we're, we're communicating something in it, like we're, somebody's not listening to you, or uh, they're they're not hearing what you're saying, and you just want it to stop. Uh, that's when we are often saying, enough. And usually there's a silence after that, right? We know what's being communicated. So we say that sometimes, but most of you in the room have probably also been on the receiving end of that before, too. That's a whole different thing, right? When your mom or dad or your coach or whoever uh, is... Uh, put up with enough of your nonsense, and they sometimes yell, and maybe not with righteous uh, motives in their heart, they yell, enough! Like that has a sober, it should have a sobering effect on your heart, right? It should make you stop and evaluate, what have I been doing? Like, and should I be pressing down this road? It's a jolting thing to have that said to you. And I mention that because I feel like Genesis 6, 1 through 8, is kind of like a divine enough. That I think that word's not in here, but I think that's the tone and what God is trying to communicate in the actual events that are described, but also in the recording of it for us and those recipients of it who hear it today. Is I think God, if you were going to summarize this in one word, is saying enough. And so we're going to look at this text. We're going to uh, dabble into it. Like I mentioned, there's all sorts of, of questions and things that this text will prompt in your mind. If you're a careful reader, uh, a thoughtful engager of the, the scriptures, I am not going to answer every question that you have from this. Uh, that's not the intent. Uh, but I want to review where we are in this story, then read it and just try to explain it and apply it to us. And so what we've seen as we've been going through Genesis the last several months now is we've some basic things. We saw God create the world, right? Speak it into existence. We saw him create humans as the crown of creation, right? But then we saw in pretty quick succession, we saw Adam and Eve rebel against God, listen to the voice of the serpent, right? Take of the fruit and eat. And we saw God expel them from the garden, right? Uh, press them away from him. We've seen some things since, the murder uh, between siblings. We've seen uh, most recently, after God had given this promise of the serpent crusher back in the garden, we saw these stories unfold where we saw two genealogies of these sons of Adam and Eve, where we saw this genealogy of Cain, the murderer, and then we saw the genealogy of Seth, who was the, uh, the son who God gave to them after Abel had been taken. So that's what we've seen most recently in it ended, we ended chapter 5 last week, where there was this mention, I didn't even really get to, to touch on it a lot, but there was this mention of Noah, right, and this genealogy of Seth. This, he was this uh, man as a descendant of Seth. Noah, it says, was 500 years old, and it gave the names of his sons. And so what we see as we come to this text this morning is that just even hearing that name Noah associates in our minds, and it would have with these original readers, the flood. That we know that story is right on, our, on the cusp, right? That that's what we're going to hit next week is we're going to start to get into the story of the flood, and it'll take us a few weeks to get through that because it's a long record. But we're nearing the story of the flood, and this is the last little statement. 6, 1 through 8 are like the last statement of God. Uh, he's describing what this pre-flood world was like and even what precipitated it pun not intended, but I guess intended now, what precipitated uh, this flooding of the world. And so what we're going to see as I read this, you're going to see what I think are angelic beings uh, marrying humans, right? We're going to see them joining in this rebellion, deepening this rebellion of the humans against God. And then we're going to see what God sees, what his perspective of all this is as sin increases on the world. And what we're going to see, it's like an absolute reversal of what we saw in chapter one, right? That, that where we're getting at as the flood is looming is that it's a reversal of the creation at the beginning. And so I'm gonna read this uh, at long last, six, one through eight. And at the end of it, as I've been doing the last few weeks, I am gonna say, because it is true, this is the word of the Lord. And then in response, if you believe that, I would encourage you after I say that to say, thanks be to God. 
okay? All right, Genesis 6, 1 through 8. Moses, under the inspiration of the Spirit, continued his record this way. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. I want to summarize, as I typically try to, uh, this text in, in one sentence, and then I'll explain what I mean by it. The, the overarching message of this text, if I want to summarize it in more than one word of enough, if I was going to flesh it out a bit, is that no one escapes God's governance, gaze, or gavel. That no one escapes these things. And you'll see what I mean here. That nobody, not in this room, not in Noah's day, not in the future, no one, humans, angels alike, no one escapes God's governance, no one escapes his gaze, and no one ultimately escapes his gavel. And so I want to show you what I mean uh, from this text by those things. Uh, so I want to start at the beginning that no one escapes God's governance. And I, I think you can see that in the first paragraph, verses 1 through 4. This text can kind of easily get divided in two paragraphs, verses 1 to 4 and then 5 to 8. In that first paragraph, I think what you're seeing here is this very simple truth that no one can operate outside of God's governance. There are no free agents just doing purely what they want that God cannot and will not ultimately stop. That God governs everyone. God governs all of his creation, right? What is described here in verses 1 through 4, I don't know what adjectives to use. It's wild. It feels strange to us, to our modern sensibilities, uh, what's described here. But I just want to remind you that what we're reading here is actual history, we talked about this at the very beginning of Genesis. These are not myths. These aren't just some like records like uh, Paul Bunyan or people like that. Like these are actual people, actual creatures, actual things that happen in space and time, right? This is coming immediately on the heels of a genealogy where real people, real names, real ages are mentioned. It's not now, hey, Moses switches into myth mode. He, he's talking about real things, real people. These are not fairy tales which makes it harder for us to understand, right? Because this is describing things that are hard for us to wrap our minds around. What I think you're witnessing here and what's recorded for us in these four verses is like a conspiracy of sorts between angelic beings and human beings. This conspiracy that's working together in ways that they had not before, right? And I'll explain what I mean. So if you look at the text itself, what it says in verse 2. So it describes in verse 1, hey, the humans were supposed to multiply on the earth. And they're starting to do that. But at some point in time, we don't know exactly when. Verse 2, he says, there's these two groups of people. He calls them the sons of God and the daughters of man. And what he says is that these sons of God find the daughters of man attractive. And then it talks about them marrying each other. And then down in verse 4, that they uh, have children together. That, they, that these women bear the children of these sons of God. So that's what it says, sons of God, daughters of man. But it begs the question, who are these creatures who are these beings okay some people argue uh, and I'm not going to get into all of this but some people would argue given that there's just been these two genealogies right there's been this genealogy of Cain and now there's been this genealogy of Seth like this fork in the tree some say well these references sons of God is talking about the descendants of Seth 
like these faith-filled people, and the daughters of man are these women who come from the line of Cain. For all sorts of reasons, I don't agree with that interpretation. I don't have time to get into all of it, but that would be a simpler way to explain this to our minds, right? Because you don't have angels uh, involved. There's no strangeness. It's just this intermarriage of sorts between the faithful and the faithless, right? Because that does get repeated as we get into Exodus and Leviticus, right? But I don't think that's what's being described here because this phrase, the sons of God, is used in the Old Testament in a very particular way. Uh, Especially like if you've read through the book of Job, you might have noticed this. At the start of the book of Job, uh, it's it's like you get a window into heaven, and there's these creatures who are in heaven that are called the sons of God. Right? They're like these angelic beings uh, that, whose proper residence is in heaven. That's how this word is used in the Old Testament. It's talking about angelic beings. Look it up in Job 1 and 2. Those are the primary places that you see that. And so what I think is being described here, and I know this may make some of you think I am crazy, is I think what Moses is describing is that there are these angelic beings who were not told exactly how, uh, but that they somehow either take human form or inhabit humans and who marry the, the daughters of man who are human women. They marry them, uh, have relationship together, they live in marriage, they're intimate together, and they bear children together. That is what I think this text is describing. I don't know how else to read it at face value, and I don't want to have to try to read it other ways And if you think I am crazy, I would just encourage you to, for yourself, read how the Apostle Peter and the biblical author Jude in the New Testament, how they refer to this story. Because I think they interpret this story how I just said to you. Uh, They taught, you read Jude, for example, in Jude verses 6 and 7, he wrote about, this is Jude's words in the scriptures, spirit-inspired interpretation of these events. He says, He talks about angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. And then he keeps going and talks about how they engaged in sexual immorality. I think he's talking about Genesis 6. Like that there's these angelic beings who somehow, we're not told the the physics of it or the, the the, the physicalities of it, but they somehow take human form, and they sire children by these women. And I just want to say as a pastoral aside, but an important one, how you approach or how we approach a text like this and how we interpret it, I think, tells us a lot about how we actually view the Bible. Like, do we read it to let it shape our understanding of history and of reality and of the future? Do we, even with its at what, things that seem wild to us and eshes and unexpected twists and turns, do we let it teach us and it shape our worldview? Or do we come to the scriptures with our 21st century mentality and what's possible and not and what's real and what's not and just lay it over and say, angels and women, no way. Sweep that aside. It must mean something else. This is important. I think this is revealing how humble we are to come to the scriptures and let God speak to us. A couple other things I would note from this section. I think these women, these daughters of man, and their families by extension, their parents or families who allow or even encourage these marriages, I would say that they are co-conspirators. They're not passive here, right? He doesn't say at the risk of being vulgar that, that these angelic beings come and rape these women, right? He says that they enter into marriage together, right? And that they bear children together, and that, that could seem strange to us, and I don't fully know uh, why these people would have done this, but you could imagine as an ancient person, now death is starting to settle in, that drumbeat of death that we heard about last time. You could see human beings wanting to grasp at anything they could to try to extend their life or to, to fight back against curse or to, well, if God is bringing this judgment upon us, maybe these other powerful creatures can help us get out of this. Maybe they could offer us something. This, this rescuer hasn't come yet. Let's figure out some way we can help ourselves. 
And if it's on the table with these angelic beings who have these powers, these abilities, you could see how humans would have been lured into that. How, how what began with a seed thought in the Garden of Eden of a woman being deceived and following the, the voice of an evil being, you could see how that could grow into more willful, saying, yeah, I'll join in with you. Like, let's figure out a, a creative way, a new way that we can try to provide for ourselves, that we can have immortality that we long for, that we can have the power that we lack. Right? But what you see most clearly, we could speculate about some of this stuff, but what you see in verses one through four is that God curbs their efforts. Right? Like God, he lets it happen, uh, but he ultimately, he curbs their efforts. He governs them. He, he doesn't just let them do whatever they want for however long they want. He governs them. And what you see is that God vows to do two things, right? In verse three, uh, he vows to do two things. He says that he uh, will remove his spirit from them, his breath from them, uh, that he'll remove his spirit. And then he's, he, I think in verse 3, he's setting a, almost like a soft cap on the age of human existence, of how old human beings are going to be allowed to live to be. Because we just read about people living to be almost a thousand, uh, right? And so God is saying two things. I'm going to remove my spirit and I'm going to shorten your life, Right? So God starts to actively respond to their rebellion, right? Their long lifespans that have in some way it seems been uh, enabled by the Spirit of God, sustaining them, uh, continuing to breathe life in them. It's like God is scaling that back and saying, I will not allow this. I will not just allow you to essentially abide forever. There's going to be a shortening, a retraction of your life. I have to mention verse 4, these people called the Nephilim. Uh, this is a side street. I am just going to have you look down and then we're going to uh, keep going. If you want to talk about this, uh, we can. But uh, the Nephilim were only mentioned twice in the Old Testament explicitly uh, here and in Numbers chapter 13. Uh, my best understanding of who these Nephilim that are mentioned in verse 4, which note he says that they were there in those days and then afterward. I think what he's saying there is they were there before the flood and then they're here now in Moses' time. Uh, because remember, the Nephilim, the other place that they're mentioned is in Numbers chapter 13, which is the story in Moses' day where they'd just been freed from slavery and they send spies into the land and the, the spies come back and they are scared. And what they say they see there, part of what they see is they say they see the Nephilim there. And they say, we're like grasshoppers in comparison to them. And the people believe them, right? And so there's this fear that has started to grow in Moses' day of these Nephilim people that are still even today in Canaan. And so my best understanding of this is that they were some sort of giant type of humans. Uh, that they were these people who were large in stature, strong. Uh, but I would say this, I don't think... And some may disagree with this, but I don't think they were the offspring of these sons of God and daughters of men. I think a lot of people make that connection here that, oh, the, these marriages happen, uh, the, these angelic beings and humans and their kids are these Nephilim. The text does not say that, right? If anything, it, I think it indicates the opposite. It says that the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, right? It's, it's almost saying, hey, they were already there. Like there was already these big people that were there and they're still here today uh, in Moses' day. They're, they're still there today even post-flood, which is fascinating to think about. So I, I think Moses is mentioning the Nephilim here, not to say that they're the product of these marriages, but he's more, I think, almost doing the opposite, trying to reassure his contemporary fellow Israelites like, hey, those people that you're so afraid of uh, in uh, Canaan right now, Remember, God has already destroyed these other people, these other products of angels and men. God's already destroyed them. Why are you so afraid of these giants, like who are more a product of natural means, who are, are just these huge people? Why are you so afraid of them if God's already dealt with these uh, children of the sons of God and daughters of man? And so he's trying to reassure give confidence and courage to God's people that these Nephilim are not as great, they are not as mystical and supernatural as you think they are. But I would say, even if they were, like even if you think the Nephilim are the product of these marriages, these twisted, perverse marriages, even if they were, the broader point of this paragraph is that 
All creatures are subject to the governance of God. Sons of God, Nephilim, whoever, like Satan himself, the serpent, all of them are subject to God's governance. There is no one who is not. That is the point God is making in recording this for us. But this is perplexing to us, right? That, that God would let certain things like this happen. Why would God let angelic beings come and marry human beings? Like, that makes no sense in our mind. Why does he let this happen? Why does he give this long leash to humans, this long leash to angelic beings that feels perplexing to us, right? And we still deal with this in our day and age. Like, when we observe wickedness in the world, when we observe it in the lives of other people, we sometimes are perplexed, God, why are you letting this? It seems like you're not governing this at all. Like it seems like this is just spinning out of control and you're just letting people do whatever they want. It can tempt us to, to think that God is not seeing it, that he's not doing anything about it. And we see that in other people. Sometimes we feel that in our own hearts, this twisted temptation to think, well, God has let me go this far in rebellion, he's not stopping me. I'm, I'm just, I can just keep pressing out. Like, is he really even there? Is he really going to stop me? Is he going to restrain me? What is going on here? But sin never goes unchecked. It does not. Like, and this text is teaching us that that this, even the most grievous sin, the the most wild, fanciful ones that we can think of, of these angelic beings conspiring with human beings, even that is governed. God governs, right? He starts to set a leash, like to pull back the leash, right? Like I don't have a dog, but I used to when I was a kid. And when you take a dog out on a walk, you have a leash attached to it, typically, or I would recommend that at least, especially if you live in a neighborhood. That leash serves a purpose. It's not always getting snapped, right? Usually the, the dog is right by you, but it's still on a leash. And sometimes if, if it's a long leash, it, they can go and they can start to feel like they can do whatever they want, right? That they can just go as far as they want, do whatever they want, sniff whatever they want, eat whatever they want. But you as the owner, you have it on a leash where if and when you need to stop it and want to stop it, you can, right? And you will. And this text and this whole story here and then the flood that follows is showing us God has everyone on a leash. Every creature, Satan himself, you, me, he has all of us on a leash. He is in control. He can shorten life, right? He had sustained life. We joke sometimes when I was a kid, parents would say, like, I brought you into this world. I can take you out of it, right? Like, God is the one who can truly say that. Right? Like he has us on a leash and he can snap it back. And when evil abounds, whether within our own heart or as we see it in the world, we must never see God as some dog owner who is chasing after his dog that's gotten away from him, as if he's lost a hold of the leash. Right? God holds the leash. Like he is always in control of it and can snap it back whenever and however he wants. He is in control. No one escapes. God's governance. But what we see as we get into the second paragraph is this, that no one can escape God's gaze either. And we, this is kind of already implied in this text, but God sees everything. God knows everything. He sees all, right? So no one can escape God's gaze. So we see these mighty men who are the product of these marriages. What we see as we get into verse 5 and 6 is that Moses records what God himself saw. Right? That's the language he used at the start of 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. Right? So what God sees as he looks out over his creation is he sees the wickedness of man. And note he says man. He's not blaming all this stuff on angels and like these humans are responsible for the things that are taking place. And what God sees is the wickedness of man. And I would say Moses very intentionally here in verse 5 is using language of what God saw because he's wanting to have it be a powerful contrast to what God saw back in chapter 1, right? If you were here with us when we were back there, uh, it was recorded that at the end of his creation, of that creation week, Genesis 1.31, God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, right? That's what God originally saw. 
was this good creation that he had created that was perfect. But now as God looks over his creation and looks at humans in particular, what he sees instead is wickedness and great wickedness at that that's in the earth. But as he continues in verse 5, it's, what we start to realize is that God sees more than just our outward actions. It's not just like God's observing what we observe. Like, I see you all right now. You see me. Like, we see outward, external things. What the end of verse 5 shows us is that God sees deeper. He sees the unseen. He sees even to what us is unseeable. He sees the human heart, right? And what he sees there is awful. And I think this should stagger us what we read in verse 5 of, of this depiction of what God sees when he looks into the human heart, into the hearts of man in his day, and I would say even into the hearts of unredeemed people in our day. What Moses records is that God saw that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There is no, I mean, you I would challenge you to try to find one. There's no stronger description of human depravity in all of the Bible than this verse. Like, did you notice? I don't think you could like, calculate a sentence or craft a sentence that's more forceful in trying to make the point of how depraved and sinful the human heart has become, right? He, he says that the Lord sees that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart, so every intention was only evil continually, right? It's like he's stacking up words uh, so we can't wiggle out of this. It's not that he says, you know, what God saw was that some of the intentions of human hearts were partially evil, like intermittently, come and go. That's not what he says. He says, every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually so all of it and entirely it and constantly it that, that there's sinfulness there's evilness and wickedness even down in the human heart right so he's clearly describing people of that day the pre-flood world that way but what I would want you to hear is that this is not just describing ancient people pre-flood people we're going to see a couple chapters from now, Genesis 8, a very similar description is used after Moses, or Moses, after Noah walks out of the ark. It, it, we'll see in Genesis 8, 21, that God is going to say again that the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Like, you're born with it, basically. Like, it's who we are. Like, what Jared read, that we're by nature children of wrath. Like, that's how we are born, is with this bent away from God, a bent uh, toward wickedness and sin. That is how we come into this world. So this descriptor in five is not just describing these men of renown and these mighty men who are the product of angels and women. It's describing all of the humans. It's, it's a statement, an indictment of all human beings, Right? And left to ourselves, apart from the intervening work of God by his Holy Spirit, this text is describing us. This text is describing you. This text is describing me. Unless and until the Spirit of God changes that. This is how we're born into the world. This is how we enter into the world, right? And I think it's important for us to let that text sit on us and not flatter ourselves as human beings. Because what God sees is what is real. Right? Like we can deceive ourselves. We can look at external spiritual realities or actions that we do and think, oh, that person must have a good heart. When meanwhile, we, if we could see internally into them, we could see that even their righteous deeds are driven by selfishness and trying to earn things with God. Our hearts are bent away from God, left to ourselves. Right? We are more sinful than we realize. Pastor Tom, uh, one of our pastors here, he taught Sunday school this morning, did a great job. Uh, he, he is not paid by the church. He, he serves uh, free of charge, so to speak, which I'm grateful to God for. But his paid employment over the years has been uh, working in imaging at the hospital in town. I've heard him talk about before, and it just lodged in my mind, of how sometimes he does these scans of people, of patients, who come in and they know something might be wrong. They've, they've sort of had these symptoms, maybe these small things on the outside. But he's described to me uh, some times before where when he has this ability through this machine to see into them, 
like to see the internal realities of them. They might not have even walked in there with deep concern at all, but he can see cancer that has spread wildly, or that he can see something on their brain, or he can see something that he knows is going to be fatal. And he is able to see in them something that is deeply wrong with them that they're totally unaware of themselves. He knows what it means. And this statement in verse 5 is like that. It's like God saying, I see into your heart. Like I, I, these ancient people, and he would want you to know, I see into your heart, like left to yourself. You may think uh, if you're outside of Jesus that you've kind of cleaned yourself up and you're, you're doing good things. You maybe have mixed motives. Maybe, uh, maybe you're not so bad after all. But God would want you to see how he sees you left to yourself is that you're running away from him, that you're, you're bent from, away from him, and you need healing. You need forgiveness, whether you realize it or not. So God, we're, we're told what he sees, but then we're also told what he feels, which is fascinating uh, and sobering uh, to not just think, what does God see in this world or see in us, but how does he feel in response, what impact, what effect does it have on him? Well, you see in these verses, in verse 6, and even down into 7, is uh, that the Lord's heart is grieved by what he sees. He doesn't just see it and be unaffected by it. Like when Tom sees those scans, how could he be unaffected by it? He doesn't even know them, but he's affected by it. But how much more is the creator of these people? Like when, when he sees the depths of their sin and their rebellion against him, not just their outward acts, but their inner bent even away from him, this text says that his heart is grieved, right? There's this, what people call anthropomorphic language. It just means that like human emotions, human words are attributed to God here. God is not a human, but we have his image, right? And so sometimes we can try to use language of what we feel, how we experience things uh, to understand God. He kind of condescends to us and says, this is kind of what my inner world is like. Uh, but he says things like that the Lord regretted that he made man on earth, that it grieved him. The end of verse six here, this, that it grieved him to his heart. That the wickedness that he sees, it grieves him to his heart. And then at the end of seven, he says again, I am sorry that I made them. Here's another little side street. I'm just going to have you look down. We can know from the rest of scripture that God is not like us. He, he doesn't just change his mind all the time, right? There's an important text that comes later in Moses' writings in Numbers 23, 19, where he said this. This is an important hanger in our thoughts, that God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? It's these rhetorical ideas and questions where it's saying God's not like us. When he's not impulsive, he's not just like seeing something and responding like, whoa, that took me by surprise. I'm going to shift gears here, right? God is never just trying to figure things out. Right? He's never just reacting on the fly to things, to the wickedness in their day, to the sin in our day. He's not just surprised or trying to figure things out. But I would say here, Moses isn't trying to write some systematic theology for us to understand how does uh, the divine, how does he actually like, relate to us, and how does his perfect knowledge and foreknowledge interact with how he, how he engages with us personally. What Moses is trying to get at is sin grieves God's heart, right? Like, before you read a systematic uh, theology book, read this, that sin grieves God's heart. It grieves his heart. Your sin grieves God's heart. My sin grieves God's heart. It's not just the sin of these angels. It's the sin of all of us. It, it grieves the heart of God, right? Moses wanted us to feel the, the relational impact that our sin has even upon God, that he is grieved by what he sees. And I think this is vital for us because we often, I think rightfully, talk so much about the cross of Jesus as a legal transaction, it, which it is. Like there, there's much about the, the legalities of that. We have offended a righteous God. We have broken his law. But sin is more than breaking law. God is not just a set of rules, right? Or like some law book. Like God is a person. And he, he created us in such a way that when we disobey him, we are doing more than breaking law. We are offending him. 
We are grieving his heart. We are rejecting him, not just coldly breaking some law. God is not just some umpire calling balls and strikes coldly, right? just watching passively. He is the creator who is offended, who is grieved by what he sees. And so none of us escape God's gaze. He sees your sin. He sees my sin, right? But what you see, and this gets increasingly sober as this goes, is also that no one, as we get further in this text, no one escapes God's gavel either. Like God restrains, we saw that, like he governs, and God sees, like he sees all things. But what this text shows us as we get into verse 7 is that God puts an end to sin. Like he, he's, it's not just some leash, like he has absolute control and will bring judgment, right? If the, the first few verses were about like God's restraint, like I can snap you back, this, this text, verse 7, is about more like God's recompense. Like I, I can bring judgment. Not just put a, a stop to your action, but I can bring judgment upon you, right? In verse 7, this God, and out of the grief of his heart, And what he sees, it says that the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I've created from the face of the land. And then he goes out and says, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heaven, like there's going to be this judgment we see in the flood that even goes beyond humanity. But that phrase, I will blot out man, is staggering to hear. Like, we, we've grown up knowing the story of the flood, and we know how things uh, roll on in the sending of Jesus, which I'll get to in a moment. Praise God. But for God to say, I will blot out, man. We don't blot out stuff a lot anymore. <laughs> we have word processing and things like that. But when they would write in ink, and they would make a mistake or something, or somebody else would put something on there that's not, you couldn't really scrub it out or erase it or white out. You would have to put more ink on it like to remove, essentially functionally remove that thing, right? To, to, to try to make it go away. And God is saying that, that he is going to blot out man. And what we've seen so far in Genesis, we saw like there's this drumbeat of death, right? That death comes and he died and he died and he died. I think what we see here is we remember that God is the conductor, Right? Like he is the one that these, these beats of, of, of the drum of death are not just random and they're certainly not governed by the, the evil one. Right? They are ultimately finally governed by God. Death is not random. Like God has created life. He is the one who gave it. He is the one who can take it. Right? He created it. In Genesis 1 we see here he's going to blot it out. He's going to extinguish it. Right? God is speaking here of this cataclysmic event, right? This huge event of his judgment that he's about to lay upon mankind where all of humanity, save one family, is going to be struck dead. We'll read about that in the upcoming weeks, but I want you to see a couple things here. One is God is just in doing this. God is always just. He's not just impulsive, like responding, like, man, today people are really frustrating me. I'm just going to send this deluge onto the world. Like, wickedness was rampant. Uh, There was this angelic conspiracy with humans. They were defying him. They were were spreading uh, the seed of the serpent uh, all over the world. God is just in doing this, right? He, He is perfectly just in all that he does. But what we see here is that God doesn't just restrain evil, he does do that, but he punishes it, right? God does, we, lo- we agree that, I mean, it's palatable in our world to think God restrains evil, like that he governs it, he can put an end to it, but to hear that God punishes it is a whole nother level that the scriptures teach us, but that are hard for us to hear, that God doesn't just say, I'm going to snap the leash back, he's saying, I am going to blot them out. Like there's going to be recompense, there's judgment that is coming to them. And what we see in the response of God, the severity of it, is that in the severity, I would say this, in the severity of the punishment he brings, we see the seriousness of the offense, right? Our sin is not some small, it's not like jaywalking, right? This is like murder level. Like we don't just deserve community service or some small little thing or just parole. We deserve death sentence. 
right? Like, we deserve worse than the flood, I would even say. We deserve what the scriptures later will call a second death, an eternal death. Like, we, we deserve God's judgment. And it's not just ancient people, it is us. Like, we who have grieved God's heart, we must ultimately face his gavel, right? There is none of you, lest you have any illusion, uh, There is none of you, as fellow sinners with me, there is none of you who at the end of your life, at the end of time, is going to escape the judgment of God. There is a a white throne judgment at the end of time of all people, including you. Like where we must answer, where we must give an account of our life. And we are coming in that moment before the God we have grieved. The God we have rebelled, the God that we have chucked, the God we have ignored. God has the power. You see it in this text. We're going to see it unfold in painful realities in the flood. God has the power to blot you out. I don't know if you let that sit in your heart and soul what that does to you, but it is a sobering thing to think, I was made in the image of God, but I have rebelled against him. I've rejected him, and he sees it. And he, yeah, he stops me, he keeps me from doing certain things, but I am answerable to him in the end. And what I deserve is to be blotted out. What you deserve is to be blotted out. This story is ours as much as it is these ancient people. We deserve to be blotted out. But praise God, this text does not end at verse 7. We included verse 8 on purpose. Because in verse 8, after this indictment of humanity and us included in it, and this reality that nobody can escape the gavel of God, you have this curious turn where it says, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That the favor of God can be found, even by sinners, right? And that's the last point I want to make is that uh, we've seen like that those certain things can't we can't escape certain things right God's governance we can't escape uh, God's uh, gavel we can't escape uh, his his uh, what was the third this, his gaze right we can't escape these things but the good news here in verse eight is that we can receive God's grace that is good news Noah did you can as well receive the grace of God. Because as God prepares to, to pour out his judgment upon humanity, he, he chooses to show favor to one man and his family, right? He, he chooses to show favor, to see him in a certain way, right? And this is a beautiful thing that God, though he sees the wickedness of man, his eyes come here at the end of the passage, and he, he, in his eyes someone finds favor. So my question for you is, how did Noah find favor? in God's sight and more importantly how can you find favor in God's sight these next verses even the ones we'll get in next week the very next couple verses say some nice things about Noah they say that he was righteous that he was blameless that he walked with God even that it says it's beautiful his story is powerful that he trusted God enough in this day and in this world to construct this ark and and to to put all his family's eggs in that basket that God is going to spare us if we obey and follow after him so there's these nice things that are said about Noah but I think sometimes we could easily misunderstand this when we see things like that he was righteous or blameless or that he walked with God We could easily misunderstand this because what distinguishes Noah from the people of his day wasn't an absence of sin. It was a presence of faith. That is what distinguished him. Noah walked into that ark as a sinner, right? He walked walked out of it as a sinner, and you see it unfold in his life. He brought sin into the ark. He walks out of the ark with sin, but what he had as he entered the ark and even as he constructed it was faith faith in the promises of God. He, he had confidence that God comes true on his promise, that he will show mercy to his people through this offspring who will eventually come, right? Noah was part of mankind, right? He, he was part of this sinful, rebellious people. 
when we get to, when he walks off the ark, almost immediately he's already offering sacrifices again, right? Like he, he didn't find God's favor by being obedient to him, by earning it. He finds his favor, right? He doesn't earn it. Like he, his, God's favor is found by him. And the way that, that God's favor was found by Noah and that it can be found by you is by the favor that was earned by one of Noah's great, 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 dot, 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 great, great, great grandsons, the person of Jesus. He earned God's favor. Like he didn't just find it, he earned it. Uh, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, I want to briefly tell you about this. This is the most important part. Nephilim, forget it. <laughs> uh, all this stuff, hear this please, like how you can find favor with God because you need it and it can be found. And I want to tell you how it can be found through Jesus. Think of Jesus' life in, in phases. Think of his birth, okay? If you think that this story is wild of like sons of God, daughters of man having children, think about what we believe as Christians about Jesus and how he came into the right? We believe the Holy Spirit himself overshadowed a daughter of man, Eve, and within her womb conceived a real human being, Jesus Christ, right? God the Son who had always existed, he entered into our world to become a human. But while these angels and humans were conspiring to increase rebellion against God in Genesis 6, when the Spirit of God works upon Mary and conceives this son, it is to reconcile sinners to God. Right? Not to increase rebellion, but to reconcile sinners to God. So Jesus is conceived. He enters into this world as a long descendant of Noah. And if this text indicts us today saying the wickedness of man was great and that every intention of the thoughts of our heart are only evil continually, do you want to know what was true of Jesus in his life? Is the exact opposite of that right? That every intention of his heart was always righteous, right? Only righteous continually throughout his life. From birth to death, he perfectly obeyed the heavenly father in ways that no human before or since ever could, right? So he perfectly obeyed. But when it comes to the end of his life, as that cross looms, if the flood's looming here, as the cross looms before Jesus, God gives a long, long leash to the forces of evil, doesn't he? When you read about the, the life of Christ, he, he enters even in, into Judas, right? He, he stirs up these crowds to, to want to crucify Christ. He works upon the, the mighty men, so to speak, of their day in Jerusalem, these powerful people. God is letting the forces of evil conspire again with even more at stake and what they do is they conspire to see the Son of God crucified, nailed to a cross. And what we could think is God has let go of the leash. Somehow Satan and his minions have found a way to get out of his reach, to escape his governance, and now they're even putting his very son to death at the cross. You could think God has let go of the leash, but he never let go of it. Like this was God's plan from the beginning was for them to conspire and for them to, to orchestrate things to bring his son to that cross, right? They were doing exactly what he wanted them to do. Because at the cross of Jesus, what was happening was more than just what is seen. God the Father was laying our sins, our rebellion, our wickedness onto his son Jesus, counting it toward him, and more than just humans putting Jesus to death, God the Father was putting him to death. Like that wrath, that gavel was coming down upon his son. Like the judgment, the eternal judgment that should be coming down on us was coming down on him in space and time that Friday afternoon. Full wrath of God was poured out on him so that it would not be poured out upon us, right? Even to the point of death, so Christ bore all of God's wrath and he was laid in a tomb, right? He spent all the rest of Friday in that tomb, dead. Spent all of Saturday, their Sabbath day, dead. 
then on Sunday morning, I, I just like to picture this. I like how Pastor Larry talks about his sanctified imagination and my sanctified imagination. I like to picture as God the Father was seeing his son there in the tomb that Sunday morning of him uh, with a smile on his face saying, enough. Right? Like if he had said it angrily here in Genesis 6, like, enough! Like when in that tomb that Sunday, it's like God the Father saying, enough. Like you've suffered, you bore my wrath, you have experienced death for my people, and now just like Adam, I'm going to breathe life back into you, but it's going to be better than Adam. Like, because this life can never be snuffed out. 120 years, I, yeah, I snapped down their life. Eternal life for you, Jesus. And eternal life for all who will come in faith to you. God started this new creation that Sunday morning. And the good news for you is that you as a sinner can also find favor in the eyes of the Lord. You deserve his wrath, but you can find his favor. And the way that you do it isn't by cleaning up your life. It's by placing your trust in his son, the one who is crucified for you, the one who's raised for you. And if you will do that, God will forgive you. God will grant you his pardon. He will show you his favor now and forever. There's a text I wanted to end with. It's from Isaiah. We're on an Isaiah kick this morning. I like to start. Uh, so Isaiah 43. I want to end with this, and then we'll sing. Because Genesis 6 tells us that God has every right to blot sinners out, right? He says, I will blot out man. Like, we deserve ourselves to be blotted out. But hear the subtle difference here of what God says in Isaiah 43 about himself. He says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my name's sake, and I will not remember your sins. Do you hear the difference in that? Like God could blot out sinners like us. He, he, does, he should, in some sense, blot out sinners like us. He has the power to do it, right? Our sin grieves his heart, but rather than blotting out sinners for those who are united with Jesus, what God does instead is he blots out our sins. Like the, the fences that are real, the way we've marked up the papers of our life, God blots those out. Rather than blotting us out, he blots out our sins and they are forgotten by him. They are dealt with. They're no more to haunt us. It's not that they're going to get thrown back in our face. But we can have pardon. We can have the favor of God through the work of his son. And what's more than that, here's a little sweet side street to look down and just stew on. If God said in this text, Genesis 6, that he's removing his spirit from humanity, shortening life, one of the gifts of, of Jesus to us is that he gives us the spirit back, right? That, that he gives him to us to even live within us now and forever, right? So that's a, a sweet gift of God. So how do you look in the eyes of the Lord? Like how does he see you? Like do you have his favor or not. You, you cannot escape his governance. You cannot escape his gaze. You cannot escape his gavel. But you can receive his grace through Jesus. Amen.